I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when you could find work at a dot-com as long as you knew how to type, when MTV still played videos, when you could download the entire discography of Brian Eno in a mere 12 hours, and you could hobnob with A-listers and still have no place to post it. I am your narrator, David Klein, and I am The Fly. In this episode, if you can possibly avoid it, do not take part in a lavish Brazilian wedding without a date. All I have to do to avoid this ignominious fate is to woo the sea goddess Janaína through the power of song. Tommy's brother-in-law, Max, He'll be joining us in Rio. Love nothing more than to travel by limo to the Foxwoods Casino in Connecticut with his wife Christina and two kids in tow and spend the weekend gambling. On a curiously balmy Friday in late October 1990, under the pretext of wanting to watch the Knicks game on their Primo TV setup, Tommy secures the keys to Max and Christina's apartment on East End Avenue. With a wraparound terrace overlooking Gracie Mansion, it's the pinnacle of elite Manhattan real estate, yet the place has the unmistakable feel of a relic, a 60s-era bachelor pad retooled for the 70s, at which point time seems to have simply stopped. Mirrors are everywhere, like in a dance studio, and each room is keyed to a particular piece of very expensive 100% wool carpeting purchased from Einstein Munji, the overpriced rug purveyor du jour. In the master bedroom, aka the leopard room, the ultra king size bed is raised on a two-foot platform so Max can enjoy an unfettered view of the Tribro Bridge, or its reflection anyway, in the East River. The kids' rooms feature tiger motifs. Taking up more than half of the apartment's 3,500 square feet, the centerpiece zebra room is relatively low-ceilinged but vast horizontally wide enough to accommodate a couple of oversized white leather couches, some splashy space-age plastic end tables, and a mother-of-pearl inlaid three-cushion billiards table, right smack in the middle of it all, without feeling the least bit cluttered. On this particular night, Tommy and I happen to possess every substance we've ever taken recreationally in the past 20 years, each sufficient on its own to fuel a pretty intoxicating evening. So, around dusk, we gobble down some mushrooms and pop open a bottle of Max's Cristal and smoke a few joints out on the terrace. And that really gets us going. We do a few lines of blow, manic yapping. Talking heads are cranking through Bro-in-Law's Primo Kenwood audio setup the orange power boost button set to the on position for the first time in its life, and our energy is boundless. The jogging tempo takes us over, and the two of us are doing laps around Max's pleasure palace in opposite directions to the beat of life during wartime, and passing each other at regular intervals every 30 seconds or so, like Lego David Byrne figures motoring through an enormous grid, and each time it's more hilarious and absurd and fantastic. Hours later, once I'm feeling okay to travel, I call Amanda to let her know I'll be heading downtown in a cab to her place, which is on an enormous party block in the West Village. The cab pulls up to the curb, and I crack open the door, and it's like letting in the circus. A roar of street noise, sidewalks swimming with people, jarring street lights that end in sharp points like stars, a legacy of the shrooms. But I'm good. 
surprisingly good. I've even got the right amount of dollars all sorted out. I pay my fare, shove the door open wide, and step outside. Straight into a huge pile of dog shit. Just as the sickening foot sensation hijacks all my remaining senses, the gas-permeable hard-contact lens I wear in my right eye detaches from the surface of my eyeball, which is bone-dry, possibly from the dehydrating effects of booze and blow and high-end California Cabernet, and pops off into the ether. Bodily paralysis and visceral revulsion take hold, but I manage to hop a half-block to Amanda's building and buzz her buzzer and relate the kind of help I need. In minutes, she's sponging off my Chuck Taylor while I lie there supine, being cared for and lamenting the loss of my lens. My vision is like 23,000 in that eye, which is a rarefied setting that requires a special order and takes a couple of weeks to arrive. I should keep a few spares on hand. I really should. The next morning, just for a laugh, I return to the scene of the crime. And there it fucking is. Less than a foot from where the cab had let me off, at the base of a stop sign, surrounded by napkins, coffee lids, and a half-eaten Mamoon's falafel sandwich, it's intact and untouched. Like a winning horseshoe toss, the lens had landed so close to the post as to be protected from a night-long parade of passing feet, and evidently, breezes had been minimal. Scooping it up, I wrap this precision-made piece of human ingenuity in a tissue, tuck it in my pocket, and give it a good clean when I get home. I pop it back in, and wow, I can see. I tell you all this because mere weeks after jogging at Max's and the miracle on Thompson Street, Tommy forswore drinking and drugs for good. If you can possibly avoid it, do not take part in a lavish Brazilian wedding without a date. A dance partner is going to be crucial. Failing that, you'll at least want to be surrounded by a bevy of familiar faces to balance out the room full of strange relatives. At these nuptials, I'll have neither. Stephen and Phil will be making the rounds, working the room. Everybody will want a moment with them. I've had the pleasure of meeting a couple of Tommy's college buddies who will be attending, notably Kenny White, whose PR firm does work for Big Tobacco, and the odious Jared Stieglitz, who inherited his father's business manufacturing screws and owns a $15,000 Peter Max print of Lady Liberty, of which he is extremely proud. One time I gave him a lift somewhere, and I had one of my cassettes playing in the car, The Screaming Blue Messiahs. After a few seconds, Stiegs turns to me and says, Why would you even listen to this? I said, okay, who should I listen to? He says, I don't know, man. Crosby, Stills, and Nash? My only hope for a non-ignominious wedding experience is John Aina. Stephen and I, as best men, will take part in a procession down the church aisle, arm-in-arm with a female participant, per an ancient set of house rules. And I'll be paired with John Aina, Isabella's maid of honor and a fellow law student. Tommy assured me she was definitely cute, and as far as Isabella knew, single. Her name means sea goddess. Who knows, maybe we can find some of that special wedding magic. Things do happen at weddings, and I am the co-best man. And this is the best hand I've ever had. That has to be worth something. Right? Right? 
Phil, Stephen, Oliver, and I assemble on the beach mid-morning on Wednesday, Morgana Day, before it gets too hot. We're all clad in basic USA swimwear, knee-length trunks and hokey flip-flops. Far more chic and skimpy is the local beach attire. Tommy arrives in a different polo shirt, phone glued to his ear. To a man, their circumstances are complex. Tommy, a budding master of the universe, is about to be married before God and family. Stephen, a new father with money problems and his own complicated pop. Phil, a renowned actor on the verge of A-list stardom. Oliver probably has a complex life too, but there's only so much I can take in. Anyway, with so much shared history among them, it's easy to just lie back and dig the banter. In turns, we all reach our heat saturation point and traipse sundazed toward the shimmering blue. Phil, with his hockey player shoulders and unapologetic paunch, trudges wetly back from the sea, his hair shining bright orange in the sunlight. He plunks down into a beach chair next to mine and lights a Marlboro red. Then, eyes closed, holding up some sunscreen, chin motioning toward his freckly shoulders. Hey man, would you mind? I'm glad to oblige. It's clear he burns easily. As my meeting with Morgana approaches, I just can't seem to get past her line of work. It certainly feels like something other than a financial transaction involving sex. She told me her real name, and I presume our meeting is maybe off the clock, but I can't relax and be okay with it. Not with Ed Koch's warnings on the fallibility of condoms still echoing around in my head from the 80s. The feeling that something bad will happen if I go through with this just won't leave me. Still, the blood rushes to my head to see her coming toward me, right on time, in a black bikini, small triangles just barely there, wearing a gentle smile. Here she comes. Ela é carioca, she's a carioca. Just see the way she walks. Nobody else can be. We take a dip, sit in beach chairs with ice pops kiss on our blanket, space out in the sun. We while away an hour or more, sometimes speaking, sometimes not, taking in the sunshine, listening to the waves lapping. I ask her if she's free later tonight, and it turns out she is. Oh shit. Emerging into the all-encompassing chill and permanent dusk of Marina Palace's main lobby temporarily obliterates the memory of Morgana and her luscious lips. I spot Tommy, who's at the front desk, in deep discussion with his brother-in-law, a debonair-looking man in his early 70s, and Tommy's twin sister. Christina, as discussed much earlier, was a foundational early crush of mine, the ideal 1970s girl next door, with long, straight-center-parted blonde hair and eyes like the sky. More than looks and poise, though, she had a confidence. Other kids were drawn to her. She was someone you figured was on her way. And she was, just not in the way you'd expect. When, at 23, she married Max, a wealthy financier with grown-up kids who was, yes, old enough to be her father, it was hard to know what to make of it. Still is. What's never been in doubt is that they don't care what we make of it. They seem supremely content with the age difference, and their tween-age kids... Maxine and Trevor are lovely and show no signs of spoilage. At any rate, they're leaving. Max doesn't like the look of the place. He's used to the finer things in life, the finest even, and this falls short. 
Not by a ton, mind you. It's just that four-star establishments don't cut it. Tommy's on the cell phone, reserving them a suite at one of the five-star joints down the block. I get a warm hug from Christina, and Max and I shake hands. He looks me over, takes the measure of me, you might even say, and in a subdued rasp, tells me, You look good. Keeping slim. Aha! So it's not just Upper East Side ladies who value thinness above all else. Max recounts the day's sundry woes, chiefly a tardy limo and various nettlesome aspects of international travel, until a car shows up to whisk them away to the Copacabana Grand Rio. Finally, I can apprise Tommy of the Morgana situation. Oh yeah? She's coming back? Tonight, like 9.30. Oh, David, he says. Tezão. Tezão is an obscene Brazilian expression that means boner. Evening falls, and after a luxurious nap, I avail myself of hotel-issued shampoo and conditioner, take a rare nighttime shave, and apply more than enough hair gel. I guess it's not compulsory, but I want to look good for her. Earlier, Stephen assured me he'll be staying out of the way until midnight and pinched my cheek for good luck, so I have the place all to myself and some time to kill. I do a lot of pacing and try not to sweat. A little before 10 p.m., the hotel phone rings. Morgana's downstairs in the lobby, but they won't let her up. They can just tell. In order for her to come up, I have to come down. I dash out into the hallway and take the stairs rather than wait for the elevator. Now, I completely understand hotels wanting to discourage guests from partaking in assignations with sex workers. The question is, I guess, how do you enforce it? They can't just not let her in. So they make their point by forcing, I guess you'd say, the John to show his face and, in effect, escort the escort. Morgana looks stylish but subdued in a black halter top and jeans, her hair spilling over her shoulders. She stands at a kiosk beside the hotel's front entrance, presided over by a compactly built concierge in a dark suit. How can they tell? It's not like she's wearing hot pants. You are Mr. Klein in 622? That's correct. In this, she is your guest? Yes. He looks her over warily. Very well then, Mr. Klein. We start heading toward the elevator, and I spot Jared Stieglitz and his wife checking in at the front desk, surrounded by an impressive array of designer luggage. Jared turns around just as we pass by, and the sight of me and Morgana jolts his heavily lidded eyes into a rare state of turgidity. Did he just give me a thumbs up? At the elevator bank, I punch the up button and smile at Morgana, who's just taken my hand. The doors part, and out steps Betty Roberts. Well, David Klein, as I live and breathe, look at you! The two of us are doing that thing where you shake hands with both hands and keep holding on, but it's almost aggressive, like she has me. You know what? What? You haven't changed a bit, she says, finally releasing me. No, not a bit. Turning to Morgana, Betty appraises her for a long moment. And you are? Oh, of course, sorry, I say. Uh, This is Jessica. How do you do, says Morgana, extending a hand. I do very well, thank you. Obrigado, I should say. Now, David, was that polite, not introducing me to your date? You're right, that was rude of me. It's been such a whirlwind. 
We met on the beach today. Now, isn't that romantic? You found yourself a little karaoke, she says with a withering grin. Jessica's studying textiles. Of course she is, says Betty, with a theatrical wink before heading into the lobby. And that kind of kills my taisal. We head up to my room, where I start to sputter out my ambivalence. Morgana takes my hand, shaking me off with a patient expression. It's okay, she says. But I feel like I should, you know, for your time. I don't want your money. My own time is my own time. It's fun being with you. It's fun being with you, too. She reaches for my Brazilian phrase book and finds a blank page. She fishes a pen out from her handbag and writes down her full name and home address. When you get back to Nueva York, will you send me a postcard? The following morning, on the way to get fitted for our wedding suits, I fill Stephen and Tommy in on the tragic comic details of my failed tryst, and they don't even question my manhood or ability to perform. I mean, barely at all. The drive takes us out of the beachfront and into less picturesque highway driving, with little color and lots of concrete and lots of nothing beyond that. Eventually, Tommy pulls into a nondescript mall, where I assume he's scoped out a good deal. He'll be footing the bill after all. Stephen and I dutifully stand still and respond to commands delivered in primitive English as Brazilian tailors huddle around us, checking our inseams and neck widths and such. The look is formal and traditional. We wear black jackets made of heavy wool with a monochromatic palette, light gray vests, dark gray trousers, white shirts with silver slightly iridescent ties. I'm sweating already. On the way back, Stephen and I lay Ipanema on Tommy. I'm a little nervous about the put-my-eye-out line, and he does wince when I deliver it, but his expression eases up by the end, and he says he's okay with us singing it tomorrow night at the rehearsal dinner. Now we're really stoked. That night, Phil stops by our room before we meet Ollie downstairs in the hotel restaurant for a nothing special kind of dinner. The guests have all started checking in, so Tommy's got a lot of meeting and greeting to do. Knowing that our unfettered time together is almost at an end, I ask Stephen and Phil if I can get a photo of them. Their eyes fairly glisten at the prospect, both seeing it as an opportunity for some improv. Stephen does that thing where you crack your knuckles all at once, in the tough guy style, with interlaced fingers bowed outward. Then he lifts the bedsheet by its edges, crawls under, and yawns coquettishly. Phil, like a mirror image of Stephen's cartoonish style, with his trademark sincere commitment to the role, no matter what, spoons in casually behind him, his right arm tossed over the declivity of Stephen's hip and the other curving around the top of the pillow. Phil looks asleep, his lips slightly parted. Stephen wears a beatific smile. Without warning, Phil's right hand darts downward and clasps the sheet where Stephen's balls would be, and the two figures, the same animal fused by alcohol, in Stephen's memorable phrase, are transmogrified into a single spasm of laughter, Phil's face flushing red and Stephen emitting a high-pitched guffaw. Hey, Bill, Stephen says, we've finished our song, and Choppy says we can sing it tomorrow night. Oh, yeah? Phil says, cracking a grin. Well, let's hear it, then. We've really put some time into this thing by now. Apparently, after hearing us for three nights running, Tommy's Navy SEAL cousin, staying in a room adjacent to ours, had asked Tommy if he knew anything about the two maricones in the room at the end of the hall, who stayed up half the night singing. 
He just assumed that Stephen and I were a gay couple, because what straight couple stays up at all hours singing bossa nova? And no doubt, Chief Petty Officer Roberts raises a valid point here. Stephen and I lean together over the lyric sheet and run through it for Phil, including the final verses, which we just nailed down this morning. Oh, Isabella, do you really want this fella? Oh, relax, this guy learned a lot. He gave up the crack and the pot. That's right. Now Tom's on the straight and narrow. He's serene right down to the marrow. He called us Wednesday night to say don't lose the love. He said don't lose the love. That's right. Phil nods approvingly. And then, to my amazement, says, Can I sing with you guys tomorrow? One of the premier actors of our generation has just asked to perform with me and Stephen. Asked. Sure, it's a song parody, not a deep theatrical work, but I know one thing for certain. Phil genuinely likes the material. And I know he does, because the other day I said something to Stephen like, Phil must have done Patch Adams for the money. And Stephen said, nope, once Phil's passed the audition phase, he chooses work based on interest. And I said, even Patch Adams? And he said, even Patch Adams. So I know Phil wants in because our song has quality. You're damn right. We waive the audition. He's off to do a mammoth movie at the end of the month, and we don't want to wear him out. He'll do fine. The following night, 50 or so of the wedding's main participants gather for a rehearsal dinner, although there's no real rehearsal. We'll all just wing it tomorrow at the church. Drinks are served, and I make my way around the room. I banter with Max and Christina and the kids. Maxine, all of 11, is a compulsive reader and has a doorstop copy of the latest Harry Potter at hand for the boring parts of the evening. I do my best to avoid the all-knowing gaze of Betty Roberts. I can hear it now. Where's your date, David? Off studying textiles? Finally, Isabella introduces me to her bridesmaid. Janaina is petite, with an almost doll-like delicacy and the softly sculpted features of a tabby. And like a cat, she seems both poised and ready to jump at the same time. We exchange a few words of greeting, but I can't get any kind of meaningful conversation going. There's animated conversation going on all around us, but our talk is subdued. Understandable, since our English is limited, and it's a start. I'll have my chance to make a more lasting impression after dinner. Once the coffee and dessert have been served, people rise from their seats to toast the happy couple. Oliver's up first, and he gives a light-hearted yet earnest rhyming summation of the last ten years of Tommy's life, name-checking the Friday night poker games and various 12-step milestones, as well as a couple of Tommy's Brazil money-making schemes that were new even to me. One of Tommy's college pals I don't know delivers an Irish proverb, heavy on the whole, may the road rise to meet you, may you stay forever young vibe, which hits home, because who doesn't love a good Irish proverb? Tommy gets up and thanks everybody for coming, then cues us to take our place at the front of the room. The three of us stand shoulder to shoulder, clasping our lyric sheets with Phil in the middle. Having Phil along adds some extra vocal oomph, and even a touch of gravitas to this undeniably goofy maneuver. No surprise, the mother of the groom looks appropriately shocked when I sing and he put my eye out. A cappella, of course. Not that I minded. 
Being one of the Three Musketeers, even this briefly, will be hard to top. The following afternoon, decked out in our finery, we load into a bunch of vans to get us to the wedding site, Igreja de Gloria, a prime example of 18th century colonial architecture positioned in the mountainous upper reaches of Rio. Stephen and I sit in the rear of the vehicle with Phil. I'm still trying to get over happiness, I say. He chuckles. Directed by my fellow New Jerseyite, Todd Salons, Happiness featured Phil as the pasty, repellent, mouth-breathing Alan, who jerks off to phone calls to random women culled from a well-thumbed phone book. Phil's full commitment to embodying this creep, without even the slightest attempt to make him sympathetic, is what keeps you from turning away in disgust. That must have been hard, I sputter. One deeply humiliating scene after another. One another hardest part about that role. I had to put on, like, 15 pounds. Really, that was harder than finding the humanity in a sick fuck like Alan? Oh, much harder. So how'd you do it? It was filmed somewhere in New Jersey, and there was a college nearby. I forget the name. All I did was eat there, fill up on cafeteria food for a few weeks. Huh, that's all it took, huh? That's all it took. It was brutal, man. Institutional food. It'll kill you. Talk turns from institutional food to summertime jobs and things we'd done to earn money over the years. Yeah, one time Betty hired Tommy and me to remove all the rotting asbestos insulation from the basement crawl space. You know this stuff? Silver with pink stuffing inside that causes cancer? <laughs> so we're in there with no protection, no face mask, getting this shit all over our arms and hair, pulling down these strips from the ceiling of this dank cellar. We probably lost five years of our lives doing that. Stephen talks about getting a wicked case of poison oak while digging ditches for Norman one summer. Then Phil pipes up. Phil had a job working as a lifeguard at a pool in Manhattan that nobody ever swam in. It was just this surrealistically empty space with that pool echo and Phil killing time on the clock, just having to sit there for three or four hours. But apparently Miles Davis lived in this building, and one day, place is deserted as usual and in comes Miles. And Phil's kind of speechless. I mean, he's Miles Davis. I'm not going to say anything to him or anything. He's in a Speedo with sunglasses on, and he starts doing laps. Cigarette? No cigarette. Keeps the shades on, though. <laughs> After a few laps, he gets out, and we start talking, and he's telling me stories. All kinds of stories. We're looking out over the city, and he's pointing out buildings he owns. Accidents he got into. Girlfriends' apartments. Wow. And then at the end, he just says... I'm Miles, and walks away. Phil will eventually recount the story in an interview ten years later, but we heard it first. Traveling up a narrow street on a steep incline, we start catching glimpses of the church. From a distance, it resembles an intricate Christmas ornament plucked by some giant hand and placed atop a fluffy nest of trees. With its whitewashed walls, stone columns, and an onion-shaped dome atop a central tower, the structure seems to get smaller as we make our approach. We disembark and make our way toward a pair of enormous wooden doors that lead straight into the church's main section, which ends in the horizontal part of the church. The walls are arrayed with a series of luminous blue and white tiles depicting religious scenes carved stone columns, and intricately shaped sculpted wooden altars are at left, right, and center. 
It's a narrow space, but the balcony level and vaulted ceiling evoke the intended sense of majesty. Janaina stands chatting in a small throng on the far side of the rows of chairs on one side of the aisle. I try to catch her eye, but she doesn't notice. When I reach her, she gives me a quick hello and picks up her conversation, in Portuguese, of course. The cold shoulder is immediate and unmistakable. She responds when I speak, but quietly and without inflection, and her eyes are everywhere but meeting mine. An immaculately put-together woman pins a carnation on the lapel of my jacket, and we're nudged into cue formation in the time-tested fashion, the lady to the man's left, in case he has to draw his sword. Some sweet church organ kicks in, and a spasm of collective movement jars me into action, and I feel her slender right arm weightlessly encircle the crook of my elbow. We proceed, two steps at a time, to the altar, where we sit and stand, and sit and stand, in awkward unison. Cued by a berobed priest with a baritone voice, prayers are offered, hymns are sung, Jesu is thanked. The congregation, well-versed in these age-old dance steps, murmurs at the appointed times. This is only my second Mass, and Tommy was the catalyst each time. The other one took place ages ago, after a rare sleepover at Tommy's house. We awoke on a Sunday morning, and the Robertses invited me along to Mass at their church, known as the Mission. I figured, why not? More time with Tommy. And I was always curious about the mission, which sounded a lot more mysterious than Temple Sinai. What stands out is the moment when we were all instructed to kneel on these leather-covered fixtures that fold out from under the pew in front of you, and everyone holds their hands together in prayer, Christian-style, with clasped hands, which I'd seen people do but had never done myself. Head bowed, I whispered to Tommy, What should I do now? Without hesitation, Tommy whispered back, Pray for Vince Lombardi. We get to the exchange of vows, and the priest reads them in English and Portuguese. After a bit of back and forth, Isabella sweetly responds to one of the priest's English translations in Portuguese, and a gigantic laugh rings through the church. (laughs) It's Phil. Back on Earth, Divine intervention in the form of a love spell cast by the sea goddess Janaina is not in the forecast. I realize that now. And hell, what was I expecting? I'm 37, not super young anymore. At least not to young people like Janaina, who's 25, if that. I have no great story to tell. No impressive six-pack and bad boy charm to purvey. I live paycheck to paycheck, work at an online content provider, And while I'm getting into yoga and tiring of my bar-centric social life, I still leap too quickly with women I meet at parties, only to have to awkwardly extricate myself from these entanglements in the ensuing weeks or months. Hoping for romantic sparks to fly with Isabella's bridesmaid is magical thinking. Jana Inya probably took one look at our act last night, three American guys singing an all-too-familiar Brazilian song in complicated English, thinking themselves hilarious, and said, Really? I have to walk down the aisle with that guy? You know, but in Portuguese. After a half-hour van ride, we arrive at a place called Casa das Canoas, and I have to say, Tommy's really pulled us off. The former home of the Brazilian Frank Lloyd Wright, 
This magnificent looking structure is set atop a slope of mountainside overlooking a bay, sort of nestled into the earth itself. Now converted to an event space, it sprawls before us as a stone hallway leads to one of several large rooms seductively lit by theatrical spotlights, bedecked with floral displays flanked by crisply attired staff standing by at your service. Balmy air flows through from the open-ended far side of the building, which offers a striking view of the distant water and sky. Last night's rehearsal dinner was a relatively intimate and enjoyable affair, with 50 or so guests amassed in a beachside hotel's party space. With those initial conversations with people you haven't seen in years, at least you have the years. You're guaranteed of a few things to catch up on. Encountering these same people 24 hours later, not much is left. You have to work at it. You remark on what a beautiful ceremony it was, and boom, you're out of ammo. Tommy's freshman year roommate at GW and I have already laughed about the walk-in closet Tommy claimed as his own and lived in throughout that year. What? There was room for a bed and a nightstand and a bomb. But seriously, what else is there to say on the second go-round? That's how it feels anyway, like I've already peaked. As for the rest of the attendees, what can I do? I imagine my basic Spanish might help somehow, but it doesn't, not in the least. Portuguese is as beautiful as it is incomprehensible. After dinner plates have been cleared, a party-hardy groove kicks up and the dancing begins. Elegantly dressed Brazilians of all ages join together in what seems a familiar ritual. Everyone knows everyone else, everybody knows the dance, and with the volume turned up and the room erupting in motion, it's like the final movement of the evening has begun. There's no standing still. You're either in or out. Me and my wool suit pants take regular breaks on the candlelit veranda to cool off, and even on the edges of the parking lot. Back inside, Stephen and Christina take a turn at the center of a gyrating circle of revelers, and everybody applauds because Stephen is such a perfect ham, shifting from vaudeville moves to a Russian kazatska, the thing where you dance sitting down, and Tony Manero-worthy disco moves. Somehow, amid all the dance floor action, we all catch a moment me and Tommy and the Sober Gang, together around a table with cigars and non-alcoholic beers and some laughs at Tommy's expense. But soon enough, the crowd's got him, and he's being carried around on people's shoulders, and I'm back to being the fly on the wall. Sometimes the DJ saves your life with a song. In this case, not even a particularly great song, but a catchy one at least. Everybody in the world, or certainly in this vast and impressive room, knows All Star by Smash Mouth, and Shrek is still two years away. That's how big this song is. Maxine, still in her white flower girl gown from earlier and all hopped up on Guaraña, a traditional Brazilian soft drink with a pronounced caffeinating effect, knows every word of it. And now she's doing the shape of an L on her forehead. And the sheer sight of her is so joyous and unaffected that my throat tightens for a second, then untightens, followed by a feeling of a weight being lifted. Blues temporarily banished, I bop on over to Maxine, and we do that oddly touching wedding dance thing between people of vastly different heights who see nothing funny about the disparity. I don't even mind that John Aina is shaking it on down with the Brazilian Bobby Cheekbones, unleashing a dance floor abandon I no doubt naively had never imagined the maid of honor had in her. 
Because this is pretty joyous right now, this moment. And when I say I don't even care, I mean, not really. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get paid. Yeah, Guy, I love Phil so much. He was like my brother. I feel like I wouldn't have gotten sober without him. Um, his death makes that, that much more of a tragedy because he helped a lot of people. It's just a horrible disease. Just, in a way, kind of strayed from all of his sober friends. We strayed from him. It was like a collective kind of thing. I don't think, you know. And then when he drank, we all were like, what, you know, what are you doing? Some were really, like, intense with him. I was more, well, you know, I was like, Phil, what's going on? And he said, I'm doing great. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you heard John tell the story. It's like, I, it's, it's adding great quality to my life. You know, it relaxes me. And like, you know, it's like, who am I to say? You guys got an amazing life. You know what I mean? He's like one of the greatest American actors of all time, Academy Award winner. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he had all of those, in a way, the, the materialistic boxes checked. Yeah. Right? And I, I thought, assumed his emotional life was okay. So I felt like a loser that I couldn't drink. You know, I was like, oh, wow, sounds pretty good. Um, and then, you know, it, it, it progressed. Like, it was during that time, I think, when we went to the Knicks game, he actually, he had a drink, which was weird. Like, why would he have a drink in front of me? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It had gotten to that point. And he wasn't drunk. But then afterwards, he definitely wanted to get away. And I don't know if he wanted to go shoot dope. He didn't seem like he was on heroin when we were hanging. Um, but I think he definitely wanted to get away to go party. Yeah. Sort of, he was impatient. And it wasn't like, oh, let's, let's hang out after the game. It was like, let's all go right. back home. And all right, all right bye, buddy. Let, let's let do see you later. Like, we found out about the heroin. He was in and out of rehab. You know, I, I remember doing a text exchange with him in, like, you know, right around New Year's, New Year's. Um, you know, I guess, what, a month before he died. He's like, I'm trying to get clean. I was like, how are you doing? He's like, all right, trying to get clean. I was like, what? Because I thought he was clean. Yeah. So, wow. you know, wow. I, we were all doing the whole philosophy of, you know, it's up to them. Right. I really wish if we had a meetup and we were all sitting there in a room, I think that would have had an effect. Even if we just had a meeting ourselves, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, I do that now. I do a Zoom meeting with my friends I got sober with. It's, like, magical. You know, Phil and I, yeah, man, whenever we would see each other, we just, like, even, like, later in life and, like, you know, when we... You know, got together in Brazil, even though I might not have seen him for a month or two. We just, like, our eyes would, like, would glisten and gleam. And, like, <laughs> we were just ready for, like, you know, one joke after another. You know what I mean? Yeah. Next up, thanks to Jiva Mukti Yoga, I'm spending more time doing downward dogs than downing beers. But changing your habits is easier than changing your scene. Check out IamTheFly.org for a listing of songs excerpted here and more. And if you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend.